be found in Romans chapter 6. Um, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11. It seems that most of the texts that I end up picking um, on occasions where I get to preach always seem to be written by Paul, as I was mentioning to some of the men earlier. Um, I really just I appreciate the way that Paul has structured a lot of this, which obviously we know that God is the author. Um, but Paul is a very logical individual. And if you know me very well, you know that I am extremely logical. I like things to kind of fit in the boxes. If they don't fit in the box, there's a big problem. Um, everything about me, it's much more on thinking as opposed to feeling. So I, I really like a lot of the line of thought that we're going to see throughout this text. Again, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 11. Um, a little bit of context before we jump into the text. Um, Paul, in chapters 1 through 5, covers a lot of ground. He opens up in chapter 1 talking about um, unrighteousness and about the wrath of God being against all forms of unrighteousness and ungodliness. And he brings... Um, builds the ground for, basically, for man as sinful. Man has sin, so he sets the ground for the sin issue. Then in chapter 2, he talks about, he's, he's writing to the Jews. Um, in 3, he's going to be writing to the Gentiles. In chapter 4, we see him talking about justification. Um, in chapter 5, we see him talking a lot about grace. So we come up to the end of chapter 5, and Paul is talking with an incredible, he's, he's going to, in detail, give this emphasis on justification by grace through faith. He's writing a lot of this to, to counteract this idea, one that he once understood and very well believed, this notion of you're justified and you're also made right with God based on what it is that you do. Your actions, those good things, that those will earn you favor. And as we see through any of, of Paul's writings, any of the epistles, we see him clearly combating that idea and saying it's not about what you have done, but it's all about what Christ has done about what he did, not what you do, that even our, our attempts to do good come up short. So he ends, as we're getting towards the end of chapter 5, to lead us into our text, um, in verse uh, 18 of chapter 5, it says, Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. He's referencing back to how our union with Adam, the first created man, our union with him brought condemnation through Adam's disobedience. So we, all, we know the story in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 where we see Adam is created, we see the scene in the garden, we see his disobedience, and from that point on we are joined with Adam in that union of condemnation through his disobedience. And the contrast here is he's saying in the same way as this came through one man, our union with Christ brings justification through his obedience. Not Christ's disobedience. We know that Christ was fully obedient even to the point of death. Right? So condemnation came through Adam and his disobedience. Salvation and justification comes through Christ through his obedience. And Paul is making it clear that this emphasis is supposed to be on Christ's obedience. It is not saying that our salvation is brought based on your adherence to the law based on your obedience to do the good things that you're supposed to do, but it comes through Christ's obedience. And Paul makes this clear because he knows how this can be easily distorted. Some of you may have even heard uh, messages where it's, if you want to earn favor with God, you need to show up to church at least three out of the four weeks, or you need to um, do some sort of missions work 
so many times. You have to do all these things, and there's this big list that's kind of an imaginary list that we haven't ever seen, right? We see all these things, and Paul is making it clear. It's not about your obedience. Now, we are to obey, correct? We, we can't take that and say, okay, well, Christ obeyed, so I don't need to anymore. If it's all about Christ's obedience, then why do I have to obey? So I want us to be careful throughout this whole um, text this morning because we have to be very careful in the way that we think about this. Because logically, you could abuse that, couldn't you? Well, if it's all about Christ's obedience, I don't need to obey. Because my salvation is through what Christ did, not what I do. So I'm free to act any way that I want. In, in verse 20 of chapter 5, Paul says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So he's saying where sin was abounding, grace came in even more. Where there was sin, grace came, covered it in abundance. And so Paul is leading us up to this, and he's building the ground. He's built all of this idea. He's shown um, the truth of man's sinfulness and un unlawlessness and unrighteousness. He's built the ground for that, and he's speaking to the Jews, and he's, he's interpreting the gospel for them, and then to the Gentiles, he's bringing it to them. And then in chapter 5, talking about grace and how abundant this grace is, how where there is sin, grace is present as well, and we know that God is glorified when grace is extended. So we see this logical sequence coming up, not talking about obedience, but okay, if where sin is, if grace comes in and grace abounds and it covers it and God is glorified through that, shouldn't we continue to just live in sin? Why don't we sin so that God can show his grace and therefore be glorified? That's kind of that logical, logical sequence. If you're good at math, I can't remember what property that is. It's not transitive, cumulative maybe. Someone help me out. We're not good at maths here, are we? That's all right. Hey, that makes me feel a whole lot better. Okay? Um, but we see this sequence, and you could see how that would be a logical conclusion, which is going to get us up to our text this morning. And before we get into verse 1, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. We thank you um, for this opportunity that we have to freely come and worship you. And as we're able to sing songs of praise, able to lift up your name and recognize um, how truly great you are, I pray that as we examine our text this morning, that we would more fully recognize how great you are, that we would see your power, that we would see your truth, and that we would truly come to understand your grace and your salvation this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So we get up to verse 1. Uh, verses 1 and 2 are very familiar for many of us. This is where we continue that logical sequence from, okay, where sin was, grace was, and where there's grace, God is glorified. So if we sin, God will extend grace, which then means that God is glorified. And glorifying is good, right? We want to glorify God. That's the goal. So he's saying, this is where we get up to our first question. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So this idea, more sin, more grace equals more glory, right? Verse 2, he answers, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So the answer to this question, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul clearly says, no, not at all. God forbid. The ESV says, may it never be. That is very strong emphasis here. It's not just something of, shall we continue in sin so that grace can abound? Well, you know, we probably shouldn't. 
There's not some careless attitude about this. He's playing his own worst adversary. He's responding to those who might be able to seek to critique what it is that he's teaching. And so he gives this contrast. He gives this rhetorical question. Do we continue in sin simply so that grace can abound? He says, God forbid. Absolutely not. And I love rhetorical questions. I love them. This is kind of like um, how when your mom or your dad would come into your room and they would see your room, if it was like mine, there's toys and mess everywhere. I used to like hide dishes. I've probably told you that before. It was a weird game me and my mom played. Could she find the cup? That's a, seriously, that's kind of how it was. Um, but this question, when, they, when a parent would walk in and they'd say, well, how, do you, how are you going to keep your room clean if you leave your clothes everywhere, if you leave dishes everywhere? How is that going to happen? They're not actually looking for an answer, and you're saying, well, if you think about it, maybe if I, it's a rhetorical question, right? It's saying, you cannot keep your room clean if you leave all your dishes and your clothes and everything all over the place. Now, again, as a kid, that didn't necessarily stop me from doing it, and as, now as a parent with a three-year-old whose toys, and they're all sharp, by the way. All the toys now have sharp corners, I guess, but they're all over the place, and you're always stepping on it. It's simply a rhetorical question, again, where the answer is already implied in the question. Verses, verse 2 says, How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He's answering his own question. He's saying, you can't continue in sin. You can't continue to live in it because you're dead to it. You can't. You died to sin. We're going to see that fleshed out a little bit more. And again, stay with me. But he's simply answering his own question to this logical sequence of, okay, well, if, if we sin, then God will show grace and he's glorified. So shouldn't we continue in sin so that grace can be present and ultimately God can be glorified? He says, no, God forbid, may it never be that that happens. Paul is talking about a very present and past reality here. He's not just talking about this idea of being declared righteous, but what he's saying at the end of verse 2 how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He's saying that you, we, are, we are made righteous. We're not just justified, but we're continuing to be sanctified. It's not at one point, at the time of salvation, God said, okay, righteous. But continuing to be sanctified as this happens. So we're going to see a progression. So verses 1 and 2 open up with the question, and the rest of the text that we're going to see we're going to be understanding how it is that this happens. What exactly does this mean? Verse 3 says, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This baptism here that's being discussed, there's no water here. There's no, it's not talking about actual physical um, baptism by immersion in water. This is talking about union with Christ, being placed in him, being literally immersed with Christ. Now that concept alone is, could be its own message, right? Being placed into Christ, full union with him, being completely immersed. It's an incredible reality that a sinner as we were, should be joined to Christ to the degree that he is joined to the Lord in spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, to the point where our union with Christ 
Paul writes and he says, if you join yourself to a harlot, you have joined Christ to that harlot as well. Well, that's an interesting passage, isn't it? When it's talking in verse 4 about this newness of life, and we're seeing this contrast of, we're going to see about the old man and the new, this idea, do we continue in sin? No, because we have been placed, if you have been saved by grace through faith, believing in Jesus Christ, you have entered into immersion and union with him, fully linked, not separated in any way, but fully together, which means if you, can, if you are seeking to continue in these things, one, there is legitimate doubt as to true transformation and true salvation, but also, as it says, if you join yourself to a harlot, you have joined Christ to that harlot. That is an incredible indictment of our life, isn't it? This, this concept of being placed in Christ in this union, there's so many ways that we can look at it. One, um, just using the term baptism, even though this isn't talking about the literal baptism. When Christ was baptized by John the Baptist, what happened? The Holy Spirit came down, descended upon him. When we are baptized with the Spirit of God, he comes to dwell in us. There's incredible union there. Um, Christ was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. Why did he do that? He wasn't needing circumcision. He wasn't needing circumcision of the heart. He wasn't needing to just simply, there was nothing for it for him, but he placed himself under the law to redeem those who were under it. Full obedience, right? Fulfillment of the law. Completely fulfilled every requirement. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 says, In whom also ye are circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ on the eighth day underwent the, the physical circumcision, placing himself under the law, and whereas we enjoy the, the spiritual circumcision. It's, it, we look at this, this whole idea of being in union with Christ, fully immersed in him. Immersed means what? It's totally covered, right? We can use baptism again as it, similar as this illustration of when someone is baptized, they are completely immersed in water, sometimes longer than others, right? And if it's me doing it, I might slip on the rocks. We are immersed in Christ. So as he's following through this, he's going to continue to give this logical sequence. And so in answering these questions, he says, no, we, we don't continue in sin so that grace can abound because we're dead to sin. And in verses 3 and 4, he's showing that we are immersed in Christ. So not only are we not able to continue in it in a, in a continuational, habitual lifestyle, but because we are immersed in Christ. Number two, we're going to see that if we are immersed, and we are immersed with Christ in both his death and his resurrection. Verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We're not just immersed in Christ, but also in the likeness of his death, as well as in his resurrection. Um, we're going to be in verse 6 here for a lot of the time. In the last few verses, we're going to kind of um, fly through. But I want us to really examine verse 6. It says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. 
that phrase in this part of the text is an incredibly essential part to understanding the Christian life, to understanding the transformation that happens. What we used to be, which is the old man, before we came to know Christ, before being saved by grace through faith, that old man is crucified. It's dead. It's gone. It's not around. It doesn't exist anymore. You cannot find it. It's gone. See, and I always was taught that these, are, that these things are always present, right? It's the, the battle between the old man and the new man. And that's what I had always thought until I actually started to study all these verses and study through the text and hear the illustration of there's like a black dog and a white dog, and whichever one wins. You, have you guys heard that one? Okay, some of you have, right? So you kind of see that. So there's these two opposing things. There's the old man and the new man, and those are the things that are constantly fighting each other. It's this idea of taking blue Play-Doh and red Play-Doh and trying to smash them together, and you're always going to have a little bit of each. But what Scripture tells us, Romans chapter 6, verse 6, says that our old man is crucified with him. It is dead. Like dead, dead. Gone. Done away with. That old man... It's gone. It has been removed. What happens with these other illustrations is if we try to keep it and say the old man sticks around still, and now it's the old man battling this new man that's come in, salvation is simply an addition to what it is that you had. There's no transformation that takes place. If we're simply taking the old man, now salvation comes, and we're saying, okay, new man, go on top of it, and you two try to coexist. You're simply adding salvation onto something else. But there's nothing about salvation that is simply an addition. Do, do we see this idea? Because when we try to limit it into old man versus new man, we are completely discounting the transformative work of what Christ did on the cross and the salvation by grace through faith. There's nothing that is merely an addition or seemingly extra credit to the life that you had of, well, that's a nice bonus. It completely throws out and eradicates the old man, placing a new creation there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, points this out. Right? We know that any man that is in Christ is a new creation. It is, it's not an altered creation. It's not saying it's somewhat different, but retaining the old parts. But saying a new creation, completely new. What happened to the old man? Verse 6, crucified, dead, gone. You're going to hear me say that a lot today, by the way. But I think it's so important that we truly understand this idea. The old self was killed, was crucified on the cross with Christ. That is so important that we understand this. Because if we think that those two can coexist and that they can stay together, it gives us reason to excuse behavior by people living as the old man but claiming to be saved. We, see, we can see the actions of people and we can say, well, that's just the old man in them that's coming out. And the Bible tells you, man, if you've been saved by grace through faith, that old man was crucified on the cross. The person that you were previously, it's gone. It is completely removed. There is no longer that person. I am a new creation. Isn't that exciting for you? That you've come to know Christ and you can claim fully, I am a new creation. You can remember what the old man was like. You remember how you responded to sin as the old man. You did not care about your sin. Not at all. Why would you have been convicted of anything? Sin was all that we knew. We read Romans 1. Look at that. They're openly um, have, taking pleasure 
in sin. Even those that may not do it themselves, but they give allowance to those who do it. So, so we see this whole concept, and I absolutely love this study because it completely um, shifted a lot of the way that I looked at this, and it should be an incredible encouragement that there's no struggle of the old self. Christ, that old self is gone. It is dead. It is crucified. And there are two words for old in the Greek. There's archaeos, which is old from point in time, which is where we get the word archaic. So when we look at archaeology, it's talking about old in a point of time. But when we, actually, when we look at, at these, we're going to see that um, the Greek study for this one is a different word, paleos, which is for old in use, not in point of time, to a point of saying, not only it's not the old man just because it was the first, but it's the old man because it is no longer useful. It is completely useless. It's dead. It's not old as far as age, but it, it's dead. It's useless. You can't, there's no, they can't do anything. It, that means that it also can't fight with you now. The old man is who you were in Adam, and that self had been crucified, dead, it's killed. What happened to the old man? Died, right? Dead. Completely and fully dead. Uh, John Murray, if I can actually find a piece of paper. Um, in his book, Principles of Context, wrote something about this just to kind of put it all together, and I'll probably even mention it again. said, to suppose that the old man has been crucified and still lives or has been raised again from this death is to contradict the obvious force of the import of crucifixion. Paul says our old man has been crucified. He doesn't say our old man is in the process of being crucified. The believer, that is a new man, a new creation. But he is a new man not yet made perfect. Sin still dwells in him, and he still commits sin. I love the way that he ties this all together. Because saying that to say that the old man still lives is to contradict the import of the crucifixion. But he also points out something that's equally as important, right? That sin can still be committed on the part of a believer. This does not mean that sin has been fully eradicated from the life of a Christian. And we're going to see this playing out a little more. Um, and back, back to verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. When we look at the word destroyed in the Greek, um, this isn't talking about um, destroyed in the sense where we see it as it's completely gone in the way that um, you would in war destroy a city or that anything would be fully destroyed, but it's the word katargeo, which is also, um, we're going to see, there's uses of that where it does mean um, fully destroyed in the typical sense that we would see it. But examining the way that Paul uses it in Romans, um, flip over to chapter 3, verse 3. Paul, again, um, is talking about the Jews, and in chapter 3, verse 3, he's going to be using this word, talking about Israel's unbelief. It says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? That without effect is the word that's being used, the katargeo, so it's without effect. We know that this same word then couldn't mean destroyed. The faith of God can never be destroyed, right? Can the faith of God ever be killed or fully removed? It can't. He's talking about without effect. 
Um, in chapter 3, verse 31, we see it being used again in saying, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. He's not talking about do we destroy the law. Romans chapter 4, verse 14, again, the context of Paul using this word, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. He's talking about the promise that God made to Abraham. Can the promise that God made to Abraham ever be destroyed or removed? It can't. It's an eternal promise that is being made. So this whole idea that we're seeing uh, in chapter 6, verse 6, the body of sin might be destroyed is literally that the body of sin might be made of no effect, that sin would have no effect. And it closes with the idea of serve, end of verse 6, that henceforth we should not serve sin. This is the idea of a servant and a master. This idea that the body of sin now is of no effect, it's without its effect, it's lost its controlling stake in your body. That your physical body, that sin has been deprived of its controlling power and you are no longer a slave to sin. Slide down to verse 16 and 17 because this is a contrast that's incredibly important and we're not going to get into much of this, but we're seeing, he's saying in verse 6 that you're not going to be a slave to sin. The old man is gone, you've been saved, you're no longer slaves to sin. What do we see? Verse 16 and 17. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. So, short summary of verse 16 and 17. The old self was a slave to sin. Sit back and reflect on who you were, what it is that you did, what it was that enslaved you before you came to know Christ. Slave to sin. The Bible makes it incredibly clear that it completely ruled you. It had dominion over your old man. But the new man, this new self, the new creation that God has given to us at the time of salvation is a slave to righteousness. We now serve God. We are now, we call righteousness our master. We see this complete contrast that is happening. And so as he's asking this question of, do we continue in sin? Do those of us that are, that are believers in the gospel and that have received grace, do we continue in sin so that grace can abound? He's saying in verse 2, we can't. And then he lists all of these reasons. We are immersed with Christ. We are immersed with him in his death and in his resurrection. No longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. Verse 7, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Romans 6.14 tells us that we're not under law, but of grace. So we see all of this, this immersion with Christ, his death and his resurrection. Sin is rendered powerless and inoperative, because righteousness has now placed sin as our master. And we're going to see this fourth point in verses 8 through 10. For if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. 
but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. I love those verses. Death hath no more dominion over him. That is incredible because because we, we go through life and we see death and we understand everything that it entails and we look at it as pretty much the enemy of everything that we are. It's, it's one of these things that we are commonly fearful of and we see that those who are in Christ, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. That Christ has conquered, he has defeated death. Fully and completely. And so he's continuing on saying that from now on we, we live to God, this new man, this new creation, this newness of life that, that we now have. We want to worship God. We want to praise Him. We want to adore Him. We want to serve Him. We want to give Him everything. And the inclination of our heart truly wants to do that now, doesn't it? But it never did with the old man. The old man simply sought to do whatever it is that he wanted for himself. So now, as we've received this grace through faith, we want to do these things. We want to worship Him, and we want to praise Him. But notice that Paul at no point tries to give this notion that we are made perfect, that those who have been saved, you are now made perfect, and that there is no chance of ever sinning again. And the church that I grew up in would, was teaching that you could reach a point of perfection on this life where you do not sin in thought or in deed, and things anymore. And, and the Bible makes it very clear, like, that's just not going to happen right now. Um, in 2 Timothy 2, there's, there's um, a rebuke of, of two um, false teachers, and I forget their names. Um, 2 Timothy 2, you can look it up if you want. Um, but there are ones who were preaching that the resurrection had already taken place. This idea that perfection is already here, that we enjoy the perfection here on the earth now. And Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, rebuke them. And he calls them out by name, by the way. It's not rebuke anyone that would say this, but it's saying, those two guys that are preaching that, you need to go tell them to stop. Right? We're not perfect yet. And this is the struggle that every Christian has because we, we understand what happens is we want to do those good things, right? We want to serve God. We want to do all these things. But then what happens? We're struggling against the flesh because that's still a battle, right? We're not battling with the old man gone, dead, crucified, right? But there's still the lust of the flesh. And this is why in Romans 8, we cry out for the redemption of flesh because we are not yet made perfect. But there is a promise of that, isn't there? That we look forward to that day of the future glory with Christ where we have the redemption of our bodies. And every day now is the struggle between those things. And so it can get depressing, can it? Because we're looking and we're saying, God, I just, I just want to serve you. I believe in you. I understand and I believe all of these things. I know the truth of who you are. But then these things keep getting up in the way. And, and I know that I failed you today. And I know that this happened. And I know that this is probably going to happen tomorrow. But that does not remove the salvation that we experience through Christ. That does not remove any of the promise because we see that when the Christian sins, we are greatly troubled, aren't we? Like no person is more sensitive to sin than the Christian. Because we understand the effect of it. We understand the price. Because the price of that was on the cross, right? Bought with the precious blood of Christ. That's 
incredibly important. And so, so the believer comes and the believer commits the sin and then we're, we're greatly troubled, we're grieved, and there's this sense of guilt that comes in, but then what do we know that comes in right behind it? This incredible work of grace, the reminder of the grace that we already experienced of saying, yes, but, but I paid the price for that. But Jesus, because of his perfect obedience, we experience salvation. Verse 11 gives a kind of the final summary and the final answer to this interaction. So, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Incredible promise and should be an incredible encouragement for all of us. That yes, sin still gets in the way. That yes, sin still comes and still tries to rule over you. But if you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, sin has no dominion over you. There's no fear in death. Death has no dominion over you because Christ has conquered death. There's nothing to fear because the blood of Christ and the grace that God has given to us has covered all of that. That yes, sin happens. And we're going to be grieved by it. And we understand that, and that's going to happen, that we haven't reached this perfection, even though every single one of us would really love it if we did, right? We would absolutely love it. But we can rest in the promise that one day we will have the redemption of our bodies, that one day our faith will be sight, where we'll be face-to-face with Almighty God. Consider yourself dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. So after all this dialogue, it ends in verse 11 with that incredible truth. Consider yourselves dead unto sin, but alive unto Christ. Because again, we identify and we're immersed with him both in his death and in his resurrection. This is why everything is so important. And you notice how how Paul, of course, as he always does seemingly every chapter, is giving the full picture of the gospel located within these verses of, oh, you think we can continue in sin now? Well, no, you can't because Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, Just the whole picture of the gospel is within those verses. So as we look at it, we we can simply see this answer. And and I think if if we were to ask at the beginning, how many of you think that it's okay just to continue to keep sinning just because you know you're going to be forgiven? I don't really think many hands would have gone up. Because you're going, okay, logically you can see the question, but it's kind of a dumb question. Okay? But it's something that's so important because I think if we truly understood the severity of sin, like we kind of live, even though we think it's a silly question, we live in that way, don't we? Of I don't need to be constantly aware of, of what I'm going to do because I know I'm saved by grace and I know all of this. And he's saying, look, don't continue in sin. And he reminds you of all of these reasons why you don't have to be and that you're dead to sin, that of the crucifixion of Christ. And he gives all of these things and he's saying, so walk in the newness of life that you experience. Consider yourself dead to sin. When sin is knocking at your door, consider yourself dead to it and say no, because you now actually have the power to do that. So we see this that, that the Christian has this transformed life. The Christian isn't someone that's simply going to heaven, simply someone who gets forgiveness, someone who just receives this Holy Spirit. Well, all of those things are true. It's someone who is actively and incredibly transformed by what Christ did transformed, not, not 
added on to. New creation, completely made new. And that is incredibly important for us because if we understand our status as a new creation, we recognize that sin is not something that we just can continue in and say, well, you know, I used to and it's okay. But we see Paul's response to it. Do we continue in sin? God forbid that we do that because of the work of Christ. And not only God forbid that we do it, he's saying you don't have to. You can't continue in it because one of the marks of a true believer is all of these things, that you are made alive in Christ, that the old man is dead, crucified. He is a new creation. Our salvation is a transformation and not an addition. And that now we don't need to be slaves or a servant to sin, but we serve God. He is our master. He is the one who we call Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what it is that you did. God, we thank you that as we look at at Romans 6, that we see your grace so fully being, being imparted to us that, that through the work of your Son on the cross, that through the shedding of his blood and for the atonement of, for sin, that, that as, he, as he was buried, that he didn't stay dead, that he didn't stay buried as everyone else, but that he rose again on the third day and is now uh, seated at your right hand. God, the message of the gospel is something that that we need to be carrying out. It's something that you've given to us as um, that our faith is missional, that we, we aren't a, a come and see, but that we would go and we would tell other people about what it is that you've done. And, and as we look around and we're able to see sin um, kind of seemingly having its way in this world, that we see it being ever-present, that we would, um, as believers, be able to, to look to each other and um, and one, just remind one another that we don't have to, that we're not, we don't serve sin any longer. We don't just serve our body, but that we serve you. Father, let it be a reminder that, we, that we're not to continue in sin simply so that we can receive grace and that we don't take your grace for granted, God. That we all understand that without your grace, we would be spending an eternity in hell apart from you. God, we know that that hell isn't, um, it's not hell just because you're not there, but that, that it is because you are so present there that your wrath is fully present there. God, as we look at this and we see Paul through all of his letters truly confronting the issue of sin, that it's something that, it's not popular to mention, it's not something that's popular to preach about, but but as your son came, he consistently was preaching the remission of sins, that we repent and turn away from our sin, and that we receive him as Lord. And Father, this morning, if there's anyone here that has not done that, I pray that you would um, reveal yourself to them, that you would allow them to, to see this, this hope that we have in you, that we're, that we're able to turn away from our sin, and that it's only through grace that it has absolutely nothing to do with our own willpower or our own desires or any other sinful thing that we may believe, that it's only through the work of your Son on the cross and through his perfect obedience to your will. Father, we thank you for your grace this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.